John chapter 13. This is a second part of a humble love. And in this incredible scene, Jesus is found washing the feet of his disciples. Have to remember that he is the Messiah, that he is the Lord and Savior, he's the creator of the universe. He is the one and only Son of God. He is the one that these men call Lord and Master. They understand that He has the words of eternal life. They followed Him for some three and a half years. And as they've come to the upper room in the final evening of Jesus' life before He goes to the cross, they enter into this room and the water pot is there and the towel is there. They sit down to eat, but there's no servant there. And so Jesus takes the form of the lowest of servants and stoops down and begins to wash the 30 feet of his men. This was a responsibility that was reserved for the lowest of the servant that would be in a household. Now this act of foot washing is a foreshadowing of the way Jesus is going to humble himself in just a few hours By going to the cross, he willingly humbles himself to wash the feet of his men, just as he is about to humble himself and go to the cross to complete the eternal plan of redemption. This humble picture of Jesus washing the feet of his men is a picture of the cross and it is a picture of our salvation. Thinking about who he is and thinking about what he has done, We are so comfortable with the idea that that Jesus has gone to the cross. But when we get startled by the reality that Jesus stooped down to wash the feet of his disciples, it should make the cross that much more penetrating into our hardened hearts and hopefully to break up the stiff-necked approach we have into walking with him and following him. Jesus was willing to do for these disciples what they were not willing to do for him or for one another. Now, we'll go through this and we'll rehash some of what we've talked about and what this foot washing is about. But what Jesus says here is a bit of a transition in this narrative in verse 12. Not all of them have been made clean by his regenerate washing, and no amount of foot washing will ever make them clean. And so we saw in verse 2 that as they have entered into the upper room, that Satan has already prompted Judas to betray him, and this prompting gets fulfilled in this narrative that we'll look at in the following week. So let's look at now verses 12 through 20 and continue with where we left off last week. So when he, Jesus, had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is, the, it is the, that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now, I understand that it's difficult to break up this narrative into three different, ver- into three different messages, but it's even more difficult to preach this in one message. You would have to leave out so much necessary information to understand what is being said and why it's being said that it's easy for us to lose a little bit of the context. So, in last week, we looked at the revelation of his love, Jesus, who was going to, as the Son of God, go to the cross and die for them, was also going to stoop down and wash the feet of the disciples. We saw the rejection of that love, and that Judas had already decided in his heart to betray him. And then we saw the reality of his love as he began, as he began to get down and wash the feet. So we look at now number four in the outline as we continue, the explanation. Jesus is going to make an explanation about what it is he has just done. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined to the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? Now what is foreign to us is what, what it looks like when someone washes the feet of another person. They are generally dressed a certain way, and when they go to wash the feet, they take off a certain amount of their garments because it is a wet, it is a sloppy, it is a dirty activity. So Jesus has now reassembled himself, if you will, put on his former attire. He has now reclined back at the table. And the picture of this is that they would typically recline on one elbow with their head at the table and their feet pointing away from the table. And so Jesus has now assumed the normal position. And as he looks in these stunned faces, he asks them this question, do you know what I have done to you? Now, he has completed this most humbling act of servitude that these men would ever, ever experience in their life. He loved them, and if you remember from last week, it said he loved them to the end. He loved them completely, and he loved them perfectly. He performed the task that would be performed by the lowest of the servants in a household, and he did this willingly as the Son of God, as their Lord and as their Savior, and as He assumes the position back at the table, do you know what I have done for you? Well, this is obviously a rhetorical question. Jesus could have sat there for an hour and they would have had no response other than, I don't have a clue what it is you've done to me. Other than the fact that you have washed my feet, I don't understand why you've done that. I don't understand why you felt the need to do that. We weren't willing to wash the feet of one another. We didn't even offer to wash your feet, yet you have washed ours. So we look at number one in this explanation is the preface. What sets up this entire discussion, this reckoning, if you will, within the hearts and the minds of the disciples is this in verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and I am. They are not deluded about who Jesus really is. They've not been misguided about the role and the function that he plays as the one who has been sent from God to interact with them in a face-to-face relationship. Jesus holds the highest position among these 
among this group of men. He's their teacher, their rabbi. He is their Lord. He is the one that they have willingly left everything for. This exalted position that Jesus has amongst this group of men is not unique to them. Jesus holds the same exalted position over all of the universe that He has created. He is the Son of God. They know that. And they are absolutely stunned by the reality of what it is that Jesus has done. So as He asks them, Do you know what I have done to you? He sets it up again by saying, you call me teacher and Lord, and I am. Number two, we see the model. Verse 14, if I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So if you remember from last week, we talked about the fact that leading up to this upper room experience, the disciples were in a bit of a discussion about who was going to receive the greatest position when Jesus was going to establish His earthly kingdom. They expected this to come at any day because Jesus had been ushered into the city of Jerusalem into a parade-like atmosphere. They were coronating Him as their King. He did not reject that. The Jewish people and the disciples expected Jesus to begin His earthly kingdom, His reign, and they were bickering amongst themselves about who was going to be on the right and who was going to be on the left and who was going to get the most prized positions in His kingdom. Well, what Jesus is doing is He's taking them from an earthly concern of who is the greatest and He is replacing it with a spiritual need to serve one another in humility. They will not understand this until after Jesus' death and ascension and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But this is the model that Jesus is beginning to instill into the hearts of His men. After all, He is entrusting this group of men to build His spiritual kingdom on the earth, and that was, only, only, excuse me, that was not going to be accomplished by men who were concerned with selfish ambition about who was the greatest. Not only were these men incorrect in their understanding of when this kingdom was going to be established, they were focused on the wrong thing. They were focused on their future position and not their primary function. Let me say that again. They were preoccupied with their future position and not their primary function. The world has been and the world is filled with people who lead and these people who lead are only concerned about themselves and not those that they lead. If you think back and look back at some of the atrocities that have been committed in human human history, and you look at the lives of the individuals who led the people into mass genocide and slaughter and unspeakable crime against humanity, what were they really focused on? They wanted to become king of the world. They wanted to become king of their own little private world. They even wanted to become king of their own church. 
And so they had an interest in what they wanted and not an interest in the people that, were, that they were tasked to lead. This is the exact same that happens within our church today. Pastors and teachers and leaders and others want positions of power and honor and have no interest in positions of service. In virtually every church that I've been in, there is an ongoing, never-ending need for people to serve in the nursery, for people to serve in the children's ministry. And what often is said is, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to serve these parents. I'm not going to serve these kids. I've got better things to do with my time. Somebody else needs to bother with that. But hey, if you want to ask me to be the chair of the finance team, I'll sign up for that. If you want to put me in a position that's going to make the decisions that lead the future of the church, I'll be a part of that. But don't ask me to serve. This mentality and this attitude plagues the church today. I'll ask you this question. Do you believe that God has equipped His local body to do everything that He has called the local body to do? Has He equipped the church to do the mission of the church? Well, absolutely He has. Then why is there a constant guilt-laden request for people to serve? You know, those poor little five-year-old kids don't have any teachers. One of you find it in your heart to do that, please? And surely somebody goes out there and feels like a heel and a crumb and says, I'll do it. I'm not going to like it. I'm not going to do it for the Lord, but I'm going to do it because I feel guilty about it. Well, these disciples were fixated on their future position and not their primary function. Their primary function was to build God's kingdom on the earth until Jesus would come back one day and establish it for all of eternity. Jesus is looking for humble servants who will build God's kingdom right now. That's the model. Number three, we see the example. Verse 15, I have given you an example that you should do as I did to you. Now, let me ask you this question. What is the greatest barrier to humble service? Exactly right. Didn't take very long for that answer to be given, and I'm quite certain that most of you had that same trait come to your mind as you heard the question asked. The attitude or the idea is, well, I'm too good to do that. That task or that function is way beneath my station in life. I've been in this church for 25 years. I shouldn't have to do that. Well, this is exactly what takes place. And this is why so many churches in our country today struggle to carry out the ministry that God has called the church to. Pride is a universal reality. It can be so subtle that we are unaware of how prevalent it is in our life. In fact, some people are very proud of their humility. Right. How crazy that sounds. But that's the way it is for many, many people. The Bible paints a very dark 
and a very dangerous picture of the true nature of pride. We read in Mark 7.21, Jesus speaking, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. And I think we could probably make more out of this than we should, but pride is listed within these incredibly egregious sins. Sins that almost nobody could ever say isn't a sin. So Jesus equates pride with some of the most disgusting sin that mankind can give themselves to. We read in Romans chapter 12 from the Apostle Paul, who was no stranger to his own struggle with pride, but for the way he saw pride fleshed out in the churches that he served. And he says, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Don't look in the mirror and say, Boy, you're all that. We have to have a realistic view of who we are. It doesn't mean we beat ourselves up, but we look in the mirror and we say, I am a sinner saved by grace, and I am in need of the continual work of the Holy Spirit in my life to make me who God desires me to be. If that is our approach, if that is our desire, I believe with all my heart that God will begin or continue or accelerate that work in our life. Pride will keep us from humbly serving God. It will keep us from serving others. And instead, it's going to drive us towards a self-willed, self-pleasured life with very little regard for other people. Jesus has just demonstrated what is to be the heart mindset for his followers. What Jesus is saying is, do unto others as I have just done for you. Jesus not only set aside his rights, his position, and his privilege in washing the feet of the disciples, but he's about to do so to an even greater degree in just a few short hours when he marches to the cross. Now, it's important to note what Jesus says in this verse. He says, do as I did, not what I did. There's a big difference between the two. Jesus is establishing a heart mindset. He is not initiating a religious rite. There are some who want to elevate foot washing to the same status as communion and baptism. But what Jesus is doing is he's painting a picture of inner humility, not instructing that this physical act be replicated amongst themselves. This is why it is an example for us and not an instruction to us. So why isn't foot washing in many denominations and in many churches an ordinance like baptism and the Lord's Supper. Well, there's two reasons for that. One is that Jesus' teaching here is centered in humility towards others. It's in the heart. It's what the heart thinks. It's what it feels. 
It's what it's desiring to do. I'll give you an example. We could institute a foot washing, and you could come up here, and I would prepare myself for that, and I might think in my heart, I can't believe I have to do this. Can you look at these disgusting digits on this leg that I have to sit down and scrub with this sponge? There's no amount of soap. There's no amount of bleach. There's no thickness of glove that will ever fully protect me from whatever might be living in that foot. God bless you. Be well. Go in peace. You see, it's not about the religious act or the right. It's about what's in the heart when we do the things that God has called us to do. Now the second reason that this isn't an elevated ordinance is that this is the only place that appears in Scripture. None of the other disciples, none of the other Gospels even record this event as happening. It doesn't take place in the book of Acts. It wasn't practiced by the apostles in the early church. The only other reference is in 1 Timothy 5.10, and it's a commendable list of traits of humility that should warrant a widow receiving the help that she needs. There's no replication of this anywhere in the early days of Christianity. It wasn't until much, much later that the Catholic Church began to practice this as a necessary ordinance and religious expression. So here's the heart of the lesson that Jesus wants us to get. Verse 16. Truly, truly. Now what does it mean when Jesus says truly, truly? He says, listen very closely. This is very, very important. You don't want to miss this. Truly, truly. I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. So Jesus concludes, in a sense, this foot-washing dialogue with this very solemn statement that says, a slave is not greater than his master, and the one who is sent is not greater than the one who sent him. So two things we can take away from this. Letter A, spiritual greatness is found in humble service. The disciples weren't necessarily concerned with spiritual greatness. They were concerned with positional greatness. I want to be on the right. I want to be on the left. And if I can't be there, I've got to be in one of those high-ranking, highly prestiged positions. You remember the way the Pharisees taught, taught, excuse me, the way the Pharisees approached their position was one of honor. It was one that they held over the people. They looked down upon others. And this is the accidental indoctrination that takes place within the expectations of these disciples. They want the prized position in the kingdom. So, if spiritual greatness is going to be found in humble service, then no servant should refuse any task his master has performed himself because he is not greater than his master. So, if Jesus was willing to set aside his garments and wash the dirty feet of his disciples because of the heart of humility that Jesus had in setting an example and a foreshadowing of what's about to happen at the cross, these men should not be willing, should not be unwilling, excuse me, to humbly serve one another and the family of God as it grows through their ministry. 
The one sent here is the word apostolos. It's the only time it's used here in John. And what Jesus is saying is the apostle that is sent is not greater than the one who sent him. So if I am willing to die on the cross for you, then you should be willing to die on the cross for your brethren. That's exactly the heart of the matter that Jesus is instilling into the lives of his disciples. So we are not better than him. And if he was willing to serve us in this way, how much more willing should we be to serve others? There is no reason for us to become puffed up or boastful in our accomplishments, in our calling, in our spirituality. We have been gifted by the grace of God to serve Him as He determined. And our response to that should be a humble thank you. Yes, I will serve. To be unwilling to serve others is an insult to the cross of Christ. And it disregards His very specific teaching at this foot washing event. So, letter B. You will be blessed if you obey. Verse 17. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now, obedience always brings blessings. Knowledge and obedience don't always go together, does it? This is why Jesus says, if you know these things intellectually, if you know these things to be true, then you will be blessed if you do them. What we know in our heads should not be relegated to intellectual understanding alone. It should be put to life practice. This is what Jesus is talking about. But what you and I know is this. People always want the blessing. I always want the blessing of God. But I'm not so sure I want the obedience part. Because that obedience part can be pretty difficult. It can be pretty inconvenient. It might even require a sacrifice that right now I'm not so sure I'm willing to give up. Anytime we have that heart perspective, we have lost sight of the cross of Christ and this example that He's giving to the man He's entrusted to build His kingdom. Let me ask you this. How much do you think pride interferes with humble service to the Lord How much do you think it interferes with humble service to others? How much does pride lead to our own willing disobedience? How does pride diminish our impact in our local church, in our community, and in the world? You see, what we often say as we consider serving the Lord is, Boy, there's just so many other things I would prefer to do with my time. There's so many other things that I feel like I need to do that I can't do that. Or that's an individual that wasn't very friendly to me the last time I had this problem. And so I don't think I want to serve them. Why would I help them? They didn't help me. This is exactly what takes place in a split second as we consider a call to serve and a decision to obey or to set it aside. So we look here 
at the explanation of what Jesus has just done in giving this example to the disciples. Now, number five in our outline, we see the exception. So in contrast to the authentic, humble service that Jesus is describing, he acknowledges that he is not speaking about all who are in his present company. Verse 18. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his seal against me. Well, number one, obviously Jesus is talking about Judas. John, in a postscript commentary, has told us in verse 2 that Satan has already tempted Judas to betray Jesus, and he is willing to go along with that. But here Jesus makes it very, very plain that he is about to be betrayed by one of his very own. Judas was detested by the early church. You think about the early church who lived in the lifetime of these apostles, the lifetime of Jesus, and knew what Judas had done. He was the lowest of the low. He was detested by the early church. In every listing of the disciples in the Gospels, he's always last. And it almost always identifies him as the traitor or as the betrayer. His name is not even mentioned in the book of Acts. The disciples needed to understand what was about to happen to him because Jesus knew that this was coming. He was not confused. He was not misguided about selecting Judas as a disciple. And what we saw in verses 10 and 11 is that Jesus already knew that Judas was not a true believer when he said, not all of you are clean. Yet he still chose Judas. And it isn't known when Judas met Jesus It isn't known when he started to follow them. It wasn't known. It isn't known when Jesus actually selected him as an apostle. Some believe that in Matthew 3, verses 1 through 5, where there is a mass of of Judeans who are following Jesus after John the Baptist, it could have been at that time, or it could have been a part of what is mentioned in John 3.22 when he was in Judea ministering early in his ministry. He was named an apostle by Jesus in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, after a time of prayer. So he chose Judas. The question is, why did he choose him? Well, number two, Judas is the one who fulfilled Scripture. This is where it gets into a very difficult part of the passage. So when Jesus says that the one who has ate bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. He's referring to Psalm 41.9. Psalm 41.9 says this, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now there's this guy who was a counselor to David, who was good friends with David's son Absalom. And when Absalom began his revolt against his father David, this individual, whose name is very difficult to pronounce, Aha! fell you got to spit when you say that if you're Arabic. But he was one of David's close friends, a trusted advisor, and he is the one who had eaten bread with David and then had turned up his heel against him. This is found in 2 Samuel 15. Another passage that is believed to prophesy about the betrayal that Jesus is going to experience is found in Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. This is a 
type, a motif of the good shepherd who is going to come in the future. So it says in verse 12, I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them into the potter, threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. In fact, I think it's in Matthew where the exact wordage is used. It describes the 30 shekels of silver that were weighed out to Judas. And that's why many people also go back to Zechariah as a part of the fulfillment of prophecy and Jesus' betrayal at the hands of Judas. So Jesus indicates that Scripture prophesied what was about to happen at the hands of Judas. Judas was going to betray him. So in the same way that David's close advisor was going to betray David, Judas was going to be the one that betrayed Jesus. Judas was one that shared the bread of Jesus. He who eats of my bread has lifted up his heel against me. So this reference to he who eats of my bread, it is stated in such a way that it reflects a long-term sharing of bread which in Middle Eastern culture is reserved for a family member or an individual who has a permanent seat as a guest at the table. It's an individual that you would always be willing to welcome into your home. It would never be an imposition. It would always be a privilege and an honor to share bread with that individual. This is the idea behind the one who eats my bread. This long-term relationship that has existed and he has lifted up his heel against me to lift up your heel is to insult or to walk out on it means to leave in the Arab culture to show your foot is a sign of animosity there are certain things that you still should not do in different cultures because it means something very specific to them And so in the same way, when you had your heel on the neck of an individual, that communicated absolute destruction. To lift up your heel in an Arab culture was a sign of animosity. And so this is what Jesus is saying is about to happen to him. He knew it was coming. It was prophesied. And he chose Judas accordingly. Now, although prophesied, to fulfill Scripture, that one would betray him, Judas was a willing participant. John 13, 2, we've already looked at. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. He has been tempted. Judas has accepted this. He's probably mulling it over. He's figuring out how it's going to go down. Long before Judas was born... His duplicity was foreseen and designed into God's eternal plan. But Judas's role in this divine plan was not something apart from his own desire. He was no robot programmed to betray Jesus against his will. Judas freely chose to do what he did, and he was fully accountable for these actions. So this same tension that exists between divine sovereignty and human choice is evident in Judas's 
being selected as an apostle. He chose to follow Christ, yet he became a follower of Christ only because Jesus chose him. We look at John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. His betrayal was predetermined as a part of God's sovereignty and that in no way contradicts the truth that he acted according to his own will. We see in Luke 22:22, for indeed the son of man is going as it has been determined and you see in italics my note that's divine sovereignty. It was God's divine sovereignty that Jesus was going to go to the cross, right? But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed, human responsibility. Some people speculate, well, if Judas hadn't betrayed Jesus, he never would have gone to the cross. That was God's plan. That was not going to be stopped. Judas happened to be the individual who was going to fulfill that role in God's divine plan. Judas had every opportunity to turn from his sin... And much of Jesus' teaching in his ministry that dealt with hypocrisy applied directly to Judas. The teaching of the unjust steward in Luke chapter 16. The wedding garment that is depicted in Matthew 22. As well as Jesus' numerous teachings against the love of money and against pride and against greed. Judas would have even heard Jesus say earlier in the Gospel of John, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? You would have thought that each of these individuals would have had a very introspective dialogue. A devil? Am I a devil? What does this mean? Am I going to be something that I didn't expect to be? Something that I don't want to be? He would have heard the warning we've already looked at in Luke 22:22, also repeated in Matthew 26:24, that it would have been better if the man who betrayed the Son of Man would have never been born. Judas heard these things. He heard in John 13:10, "Not all of you are clean." Jesus around the t- Judas around the table, having his feet washed by Jesus, unfazed unmoved by the love that is being displayed to him by the Lord and the Savior. And Judas' decision to betray Jesus was just simply solidified in his heart. Unthinkable. Unimaginable. Judas acted according to his own free will, according to the divine plan of God, where divine sovereignty and human choice exist in an area that you and I have a very difficult time reconciling. Our mind is not like his mind. So, number four in this section of our outline is Jesus' request to just believe in me. He says in verse 19, From now on I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. He's telling them in advance, excuse me, telling them in advance so that they wouldn't lose faith. Even though they would be shocked at the cross, even though they would scatter in the shadow of the cross, they would not lose faith in who he is. Now, when Jesus says that you may believe that I am, that is the great I am, ergo am I, the undoubted 
proclamation that Jesus says, I am the all-encompassing term for God as you would understand it. I want you to believe that I am none other than the one you would call Yahweh. You're going to see things, you're going to hear things, you're going to experience things that are going to make you question who I am and what is going on, but I'm telling you about this in advance so that you will believe that I am He. I want you to better understand my omniscience and believe in my deity. Judas's treachery has zero impact on who Jesus is. It has zero impact on what Jesus' mission is and how this mission is to be accomplished. And he is underscoring that in the hearts and the minds of his disciples who will understand what this means many, many days later. And this brings us to verse 20. Truly, truly, again, this solemn statement, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. So in light of the shocking betrayal that they are going to be witnesses of, Jesus reassures them of the credibility that they're going to have as they go out and begin to build Jesus' spiritual kingdom. They still had an eternal commission which they would later hear and understand. These 11 men would be apostles. They are the ones that are going to be sent having the full authority from the one that sent them, to receive the messenger is to receive the sender. And this is what he is underscoring in their hearts and in their minds. And most certainly the Holy Spirit would bring this truth to their hearts and minds as they receive the Great Commission to go into all the world making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Well, like today, and how we would understand an ambassador, this call was not relegated to just these disciples. It's for all today. 2 Corinthians 5.20, we read this. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So when you and I leave this place and we go out into the world and we live out our Christianity in front of other people, we are ambassadors for Him. We've been sent. And we are ambassadors for the One who has sent us. Now the reality is we are either very, very good ambassadors who correctly reflect the One being sent or we are ambassadors who need a lot of work, right? And we all need a lot of work. So we have to be honest and humble. We have to be willing to let God continue to do what He desires to in us. But this whole act of the foot washing and it being a foreshadowing and a picture of the cross and an example for how we are to live our lives with the same humility of heart that Jesus had is one that you and I ought to wrestle with each and every day. The Christian life is not to be lived in a vacuum. We are called the body of Christ. When the body flourishes, everybody flourishes with it. When the body doesn't flourish, the rest of the body suffers because of it. One of the greatest honors and privileges that you and I can have is to emulate 
the humility of Christ by a willingness to serve Him and serve one another. Would you pray with me, please? Well, Father, the words are very simple, but the execution is very, very difficult. We must continually die to ourselves each and every day so that we can live to you. And as we live to you, we live to serve you and serve others. Father, we pray that you would take what little we have to offer in comparison to what you offered and that you would just bless it and multiply it and make a difference in the lives of those that we strive to serve. Father, would you continue to strip us of our pride, of our self-will and our self-rule? Would you make new to us the reality of the cross, the example that you set for us to follow? And we pray, Father, that you would find within us determined hearts to obey you, to follow you, to do the things you've called us to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.